So uh, we're going to continue our series this morning. I won't be long uh, because uh, we actually have a gathering this evening. I hope you all can make it back. I just encourage you to. In my old church, right, there wouldn't even be any, like, you know, negotiation. The church I came out of, our pastor like, you will come back that evening. Uh, some of you probably came out of church situations like that, like your life depended upon it, like your salvation depended upon it, whether or not you follow the pastor around on evening services or whatever, right? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, okay, all right. Well, we're not going to do that to you, but we do strongly encourage you to come back because we are actually hosting the Unity Gathering this evening. And so there'll be a lot of churches present this evening uh, here at Mission House at Eisenberg. And so I just want to encourage you to come out. Uh, it's going to be great. going to be singing. Uh, they'll be praying, and, uh, and uh, I'm actually going to be in a conversation with a couple pastors on the stage, and we're going to have some really honest and candid and passionate discussions. So hopefully we'll be able to break past the safety conversation, right? We'll get into some deep stuff about what the church can do in this community around reconciliation and racial justice. Amen? So if anything, I'm going to need y'all to show up so y'all get my back. Amen, because I might say some stuff, man, folks might want to kill us out in the parking lot or something, right? Yeah, like, okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> amen. So we have been talking about Jesus for president, and if you've been paying attention to uh, the media, social media, it's gotten ugly, y'all. Would you agree? It's gotten real ugly, and you know, sadly, you got Christians in the fight too. You got Christians in the fray, saying some ugly stuff from all sides, and it's scary. And so, you know, um, I am a firm believer in Christians engaging in the political process, but I think that Christians should add a flavor and a quality to this whole thing that's different from what the world offers. And so, we just lift that up. And we pray that God will give us discernment how we should engage uh, this upcoming election, not just nationally. Um, folks tend to focus on what's happened nationally, but there's some very important local elections happening. The school board here, um, I can't name, I can't support candidates from the, from the uh, pulpit here because I'll get in trouble. Um, but uh, there are important school board elections I want you to pay attention to. Uh, county commissioner elections coming up. Pay careful attention to that who's running for county commissioner, what that's all about. Because I'm just going to be honest with you. What I can say is this, though. We need some folk who do hold political power here that will speak on behalf of people who don't have a lot. Come on, church. We need people with political power here that will use their political power wisely, and they will not use it just simply on the interest of the powerful in our community. So pay attention to that. What are they talking about? Look at their track record. Who do they advocate for? Do they advocate for the powerful? Or do they advocate for the oppressed and those who suffer at the hands of unjust institutions in this community? Hmm. All right, I'll leave it alone, y'all. I'll leave it alone. So, oh, Pastor, just preach the word. You know, I actually had a, a while back when I was getting to know some of the pastors here, and they saw us me engaging with other people like Miss Emily and Tanya and other people, Miss Brenda and others, uh, along with civic engagement. i never forget, I sat down at a uh, restaurant with a couple of local pastors, 
And they looked at me and said, well, Anthony, you know, you just preach that gospel. You just pre- you talk about that political stuff. We'll just preach the gospel. I said, wow. Y'all brothers don't read the gospels that much, do you? <laughs> I said, y'all don't read that red-lettered stuff. That's some dangerous stuff there. And, you know, of course... What is the gospel? I love the video that we played earlier at the beginning, a pre-worship video of a good friend of mine named Brian McLaren. He talked about how um, Christians have reduced the gospel to just simply your personal sin and how it is simply an affront to God in that if you believe, if you say the magic words, Jesus died for my sins and rose on the third day, if you believe this abracadabra, you're saved and you get to go to heaven when you die. We've reduced the gospel to that. But what we're learning in this Jesus for President series is that the gospel is way much bigger than that. Matter of fact, it's interesting, Christians are so obsessed with whether or not they get to go to heaven when they die, they have forgotten that when they pray, Jesus told us to pray that the kingdom of God, that heaven will come down to where? Earth. Y'all know the prayer. Y'all remember it when y'all little kids. Our Father who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. So, yes, there is resurrection. Don't get me wrong. Now, I am a doctrinal Christian. I consider myself an orthodox Christian. I love the doctrines of the church. Yes, so, yeah, I do believe in resurrection is what the New Testament teaches. Paul talks about resurrection of our bodies. So I do believe in that, in Christ. But here's the thing, though. Uh, the church in America today, for many places in the church, unfortunately, even places here in his own community, the church becomes so heavenly minded that it is no earthly good. We focus on charity, which is good. Charity is great. But like we said last week, Jesus didn't say the spirit of the Lord is upon me just to give turkeys and toys at Christmas and Thanksgiving. Jesus said the spirit of the Lord is upon me to set the oppressed free. Amen. Amen. That's Jesus for president. Turn to your neighbor and say Jesus for president. Turn to your neighbor and say Jesus got my vote. Amen. <laughs> All right, so this morning we're going to go back, actually. Last week we were in Luke 4. We're going to rewind it to a scene in the Gospels I think is very potent, and I really want you to reflect. I'm praying that we just have uh, the Spirit just teach us this morning. Uh, I'm not really hoping to really preach this morning. I really just want to teach some things to you. If y'all remember back in the day, some of y'all are Babel Lab uh, veterans you know, you know, we had those crazy moments when we would dive deep into the scriptures. I want to do something like that this morning. I don't have a whiteboard or anything, but I do want to teach you this morning. I think oftentimes the church suffers from disciples who are not taught the words of Jesus. We're not really taught the gospel. What we're taught is Christian television pablum, stuff that will excite you. Hmm. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. 
Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, and I'm going to use the more correct Greek there. Most more contemporary English translations say, if you are the son of God. Actually, in the Greek, it's not if you are. It's actually since you are. Since you are the son of God, tell those stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Hmm. Interesting. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered. It is said. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Amen. One of the things I'm going to tell you, when we're doing the work of the kingdom of God, the temptation, the testing that may come from the enemy is not a one-off moment. It's not a one-off thing. It seems to keep going and never seems to stop. And one of the things that we know is that in this passage, the Bible says that the spirit of the Lord was on him. And in the gospel of Mark, it says the spirit pushed him into the wilderness to be tested by the enemy. Isn't that interesting? God put him in a place to be tested and tempted by, or tested rather, to be tested by the enemy. Isn't that interesting? So you mean to tell me that the work in the kingdom of God, that sometimes the enemy can be a gift. (laughs) Too often there's a theology out there that tells you that in some sense there is some truth to this. But oftentimes we are taught, oftentimes, well, a theology that says that Satan, that the devil can just do whatever the devil want to do, that the devil has no constraints, that he is not on a leash, although sometimes a very long leash. But we get taught this theology that the devil is running rampant, doing this crazy stuff, whatever he wants to do, or it's doing. But in this passage, the Spirit of the Lord led him into the place to be tested by the enemy. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? See, Jesus would have been messed up had he been in certain churches. If he had ended up in the wilderness, in the theology that says, 
this speak your way out of it. As if this is completely a bad thing. No, Jesus has been pushed into this place to be tested. I remember several years ago when I first started preaching the gospel as a young minister. And uh, I had, you know, like I do today, and I'm praying. Y'all pray for, I'm praying healing. I've been praying for healing for years. Pastor Dustin asked me the other day, man, do you ever pray for healing? I said, yeah, I do pray for healing. I have severe asthma. And it's been a couple of handful of times that I almost died because of my asthma. I remember the first time, though, that I almost died. Um, and it was crazy because uh, we were up house-sitting and babysitting uh, my mentor in the gospel at the time. And I was real tight in my lungs. Anybody have asthma here? They may know how it is when you get real tight. You can't breathe. And so they had flown, my pastor and his wife, they had flown out of town. And they uh, uh, were in flight. And a storm came. And this is rare. I don't know if you've flown a lot. But the sto- this, this really bad storm had came. And it forced their flight to land in an airport where they had to sit for a little while until the storm passed over. And so when they landed, he felt that my pastor told me, he said, I felt this strong unction to call to check on y'all. And so me, I was at this point, I was a veteran asthma sufferer, so I kind of knew my limits, right? I'm like, okay, you know, I can just wait till the morning. I can go to the emergency room, the hospital then. And I'll never forget, he called and uh, the person answered the phone, and it was like, how's everybody doing? Everybody's fine. Anthony's asthma's not doing too good, but he'll be uh, he'll going to the hospital in the morning. And something came over my pastor and said, no. The Lord told me to tell you to go talk, call the ambulance right now. He's like, what? I was like, yo, I'm not that bad. I'm really not that bad. I can wait. Because we, we think we know our bodies, right? And so I was like, okay, I'll do it because he ain't going to let up. Cause my pastor was really uh, like that. He was really forceful like that on some things. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. So um, folks called, ambulance. Y'all, as soon as the ambulance rolled up, I stopped breathing. I don't know about you, but there's something about not being able to breathe is very frightful, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Anybody ever start breathing before and you're conscious still? No? It's the scariest thing ever. And I never forget as they're putting me, rolling me on the, on the ambulance, rushing to get me on the ambulance, and they're rushing me to the hospital, and I'm sitting there. And I'm thinking to myself, I am about to die. And y'all, I heard this voice say to me, and it felt like it was like the enemy. Y'all know what I'm talking about? When your hair raised up on your, on, your, uh, on your body, and you feel this foreboding feeling. And I heard this voice say to me, you're going to die tonight, boy. You're going to die tonight. And in that moment, I literally thought I was going to die. 
And then they had this extra thing happen, this voice, this sense that you are going to die tonight. And I don't remember much after that. Only thing I remember is waking up some hours later with tubes and mouth and throat and all kind of stuff. And I remember um, the nurse saying, had you waited till the morning, you would have made it to the morning. You would have died in your sleep. Had your pastor had not, a, had not a storm hit his plane to make him land, to call you, to tell you to come to the emergency room, you would have died. And I tell that story because in that moment, even in a moment of, of fright, when I had no control of what was going to happen to my body, I felt like at that moment that whatever God had called me to, it was going to end that night. It was real, y'all. I thought my life was over. But then there's something about God that, that and I don't know, I don't want to claim any special privilege or anything like that. I don't know if I, we can say it was providential. We can say that it was just God's careful hand in bringing a storm, forcing my pastor to land, plan, uh, plane to land for him to call and to feel pressure to tell me, you need to go to the hospital now. That saved my life. But as I sat in the back of the ambulance, when I reflect back in my own life, in that moment, for me, that was a moment of temptation. To give up. To give up life. And here's where we find ourselves in a similar situation with Jesus, and more so at the end of the Gospels with Jesus. But this is the beginning in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Jesus is being tempted and tested by the devil. And the Bible says that for 40 days he was being tested by the enemy. And it says he had not ate for 40 days. Has anybody ever in this church ever not ate for 40 days? I haven't, never. I think maybe the longest I've went without food, maybe it's probably like 10 days. That was back in my early Pentecost days. We were hardcore like that. I probably will never do that again. I, actually, I, I probably, well, no, I ain't going to say probably. I'll never do that again. You start hearing all kind of stuff when you ain't ate for 10 days. Amen. Right? But if you ever fasted for any amount of time, and that's something that the church, many churches have gotten away from, and I really want to encourage you to incorporate that into your own spiritual formation, into your own discipleship with the Lord. There's something powerful about when you set something aside that, that preoccupies a whole lot of your time, like food, for instance. And there's something very special about food when you set it aside. It helps focus you. It helps give you clarity. makes you more sensitive to the Spirit of God. 
And so Jesus is like 40 days into this thing, and the Bible says he has, he has had no food. And I found it interesting that um, the first thing the devil does, and, and I love this part of the scriptures because one of the things that we got to do is tell the story right. And so when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, there's something about 40 days that Christians should, like, your, your alarm signal should go off, your Bible alarm signal should go off. Because what is it about 40 days in scripture? The nation of Israel was in the desert in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Luke is being very intentional in bringing the fact that it's 40 days that Jesus is in the wilderness, just like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. And see, in other cultures, like indigenous cultures and Native American cultures, they have a language for this. Or in aboriginal cultures in Australia, in Australia, they have this, this language that set, they talk about when they send their young men and women, or young men in particular, out into the outback, out into the, into the desert place. They call it a walkabout. Y'all like my Australian? Kids like it. Thank you, Jordan. Or in Native American culture, they have, or indigenous culture, they have what they call a vision quest. Write a passage where a young man goes out into the wilderness. And sometimes they would give him a little something to take, to ingest, to help him open up a little bit. I won't talk about that. Help him see some stuff, you know. Uh, and so what it is is about this, a, a young person being sent out into the wilderness, into this desert place, for, so that what's in them, who they really are, will be tested at the very core of their being. So who they are, who they're meant to be, who God has created them to be, their very core, that seed of who they are, the pressure of testing, the pressure of being in a place where you are, being, you are without, that you have lack. Somehow it, it adds a pressure to one's being that who you are will come out more. So here's Jesus. And the thing that's interesting is in the Gospel of Luke, at this point, uh, Jesus actually is not a young man. <laughs> I love this because I'm approaching, you know, somewhere in the middle there. I'm past four, that number four and zero. I'm past that number. So... In Jesus' culture, in the Gospel of Luke, the Bible identifies the age of Jesus as the age of 30. Now, in our culture today, we're thinking, okay, wow, he's, he's pretty young, right? He's, he's, just, he's coming of age, right? No, in Jesus' culture, the average lifespan of a young Israelite, a Palestinian Jew, was in the 30s. Upwards to early 40s. So Jesus would have been seen actually midlife. He would have been seen as an elder in this community. He would not have been seen as a young man. I know that's contrary to you American Christians, how you've been think to, talk, to, to, uh, to look at Jesus as a young man. He died so young. But in Jesus' culture, he would have been seen as a wise elder. Y'all look at me like, what? We thought Jesus was a young young. Young buck. No. 
you don't believe me, check it out. Look it up. And so Jesus is really at the middle of his life. Is sent into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? It's later in life that Jesus' core identity is being challenged in a way that has not been challenged up to this point. So we're led to believe in the gospel. It could have been some other testings up to that. But this one is significant because Jesus does not start his ministry. This is right before Jesus starts his ministry at age 30, at a middle-aged uh, uh, age. He is a middle-aged man starting late in life. He is not actually starting young like a lot of people think he did. And so he starts his ministry. But before he gives his inaugural sermon like we talked about last week, Jesus is sent to be tested in his core identity. And I love this. It says, and the devil said to him, verse 3, if you are the son of God, or since you are the son of God, son of God, Son of God. Son of God. And see, one of the things I'm learning, y'all, and this is, this, is, this is just where we're at right now in this culture. What I'm discovering is that many Christians uh, and even people who are not Christians, you'll be amazed how much we don't know the scriptures in our culture right now. Even in the so-called Bible Belt. Many of us don't really know our Bibles. Y'all, I'm, I'm sure all y'all Bible scholars, right? Y'all, y'all good, right? Y'all know the word of the Lord, right? Y'all know them scriptures backwards and forwards. But you'd be amazed how many people who live in the buckle of the Bible belt don't know their Bibles. It's the craziest thing. But they talk the language of Christianity. I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. But I don't know the scriptures that well. And so when Satan says to Jesus here, since you are the son of God, turn this bread into a stone. Son of God. Son of God. We can get that slide up there. Son of God. There's something about son of God. Now, some of you who are deep, you're probably thinking, okay, you know, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. There's Father, there's Son, and there's Holy Spirit, right? Surely that's what they're talking about, right? Surely Satan says, since you are the second person of the Trinity, um, that, you know, you will be able to turn this bread into stone. But that's not actually what the text is primarily talking about, actually. It's referring to a title of kingship. Son of God in Scripture, if you go all the way back to Psalm 2 and 7, it says, is the king, uh, is the king, is that, it's, it's a royal title of kingship over Israel. In ancient Israel, the belief was, was that the Messiah, the Christ, will be God's own son, that he will represent the interests of the God of Israel, not only in Israel, but to the nations. And so part of that being a king of Israel, part of being Messiah, the, th the thought was, was that you would be God's own son. 
And so literally, the way they would have heard it when the first century Christians would have heard this passage, it would have read like this. The devil said to him, since you are the king, since you are the true ruler of Israel and extensively the world, tell this stone to become bread. And one thing we've said before, and it's interesting, and it bears repeating now, when we say Jesus the Christ, even to this day, even as many times like I've taught it, like I come back and you know, people in Bible have noticed this when I come back and say this months later, I say, what does it mean to say Jesus is the Christ? And people look at me like, because we're socialized, we're taught to think that that's his last name. Like Jesus Smith or Jesus Jones or Jesus McGillicuddy. Jesus Christ, that's his last name. You know when you get mad, you say, Jesus Christ, right? Say the Lord's name in vain, Jesus Christ. No, Christ means king. In particular, Christ means the anointed king. That's why he says later in the next passage over, he says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me because I am the king of Israel. I am the king of God. I am here to represent God's kingdom in the earth because I am a king called to represent the kingdom of God in the earth. And so Jesus is the king, the son of God. And this is interesting stuff because I want to read a passage to you out of ancient Rome about the way they would use son of God. This is a letter written to Caesar. I want to read this to you. Caesar literally means king or ruler. I'm not going to even try to sound deep and read the Latin. But here's the English. The most divine Caesar, we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, you restored it once more and gave the whole world a new age. Caesar, the common good, fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has required, uh, regulated our, our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection is giving to us the emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas have become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the God, Augustus, has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, Evangelion. Now you see why Christians got in trouble. Can you see that? 
the most powerful military and political force in the world of Jesus, in the time of Jesus, used language like this is the son of a God, that this is a son of God. This is a ruler, a king, a lord who has ruled and has ended and put down law and order all over the Roman Empire. He has brought about good news, euangelion, evangel, or the word we get evangelist is where we get this term from, the messenger who will spread the news throughout the Roman Empire that Caesar is Lord, that he has conquered all his enemies, this son of Zeus, the son of God. So here it is in this passage. I'm just going to be honest with y'all. Christians were some troublemakers. I'm telling you, like, they, 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 they were some troublemakers, y'all. It wasn't just because they believed in God, that God existed, that it would be fed to lions and burned at the stake. I know it's popular Christian terminology right now, all these God is dead, God is not dead, movies and all that, right? You know, see, God is not dead, he's still alive, and y'all think that's, y'all think that's like subversive in this culture to proclaim that God is not dead. God is not the problem. It's what kind of God is the problem. And so Christians, who are Christians now, you got to understand, they, they are like great hip-hop artists, right? They are ripping the language of the Roman Empire and applying it to Jesus because they were saying that y'all think this human being, this, this, this human being who, who runs the world by suffering and oppression, by his armies, by weapons, by crushing people, by using his power is the true and living God. But here we are as Christians saying in this passage that no, the true and living God, the true ruler of the world is a Galilean peasant from the hood. A nobody. This weird itinerant prophet going around saying some crazy stuff like love your enemies. Sell all you have and give to the poor. That's what they thought Christians were peculiar. Why would you call this person the son of God? This is peculiar. Why? Because Kings weren't crucified. And so Jesus is being called the son of God. He's being tempted. And so the uh, devil says, since you are the son of God. So one of the things that you'll learn in this passage is that there's something about the enemy. See, the enemy will not, the enemy will often tempt us and test us at the place of mission and identity. Satan was not tempting or testing Jesus whether or not he was the son of God. The temptation was what kind of son of God would he be? So as Christians today, we're tempted to be good, just good Christians. To just be very moral people.
to just stop drinking and, and, and cussing and no longer going to rated R movies and not reading Harry Potter books. And so we're tempted to think that this is what the Christian is. When I know atheists and Hindus and Buddhists who don't do those things as well. But that as Christians, we're called to be reflections of this son of God. And one of the things I notice is we're talking about Jesus for president. You're asking, well, what does that come in for Jesus for president? It comes right here is that the first temptation, it says, turn this stone, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. What does that mean? The son of God who was sent here for others is asked to preoccupy himself with his own survival. Because Jesus is hungry. Probably Jesus is probably starving at this point. But he's asking this great king who was sent here for other people to alleviate their suffering, to cast out, to free those who are being oppressed, those who are being held captive, to be other people, to feed them. Actually, to be the bread of life for other people, he is asked by Satan to turn stone into bread so he can just feed himself, to be concerned about his own survival, his own well-being at the expense of others. It's like saying America first. Forget about the mother people. If Jesus was president of the United States of America, he'd be tempted to create policies and procedures and laws that will only just benefit his own country. And not think about other people, people that are suffering in other places of the world. And if I could be honest with you, he actually wouldn't be able to be president because if that was his platform, they'd be like, well, no, you can't be president. Because the reason why we have human political systems is for our own personal survival at the expense of others. And so the thing about Jesus' kingdom, which makes Jesus' kingdom so different than other human kingdoms, is that it is other-centered. It is not self-centered. The Bible talks a lot about dying to self. And so people, I know I can hear somebody saying now, well, Pastor, you're saying that I should starve to death and just feed other people? What about me? No, no, no. In the kingdom of God, we eat together. And Jesus would do this later in a miracle with the fishes and loaves. They would eat together. No one is left out. And so Jesus is tempted to make bread for himself. To get that resource for himself. So be careful, Christians, brothers and sisters. You'll be tempted as well, but you'll be tempted with people using the language and the word of Jesus to demonstrate the opposite of this very thing. Oftentimes, as Christians, we're presented with a Jesus who actually would have succumbed to the temptation to turn stone into bread. 
God bless America and no place else, right? Isn't that what we're told? But Jesus says, no. There's something higher that I'm living for. Because man does not just live on bread alone. There are things much more important than economy. There's things much more important than cheddar, than bricks, than stacks. There's something more, much more important than bread itself. And there is something that is much more important. And so then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to you anything you want. I can give you your power back. Jesus, I can give you power. And we've heard this even in this last election cycle. One candidate in particular says, tells the Christians, I can give you your power back. What power? For those of us who are filled and have present in our lives the Christ, the Holy Spirit, what power can you give me that's better than this? So Jesus is tempted. He's being, the devil is trying to politically seduce him, cast a spell over him. Because I'm going to tell you something, power is seductive. But Jesus engages in a kind of resistance. Jesus, in obedience, says, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So in obedience, God, Jesus says uh, that, um, which he represents uh, a priority of the world, Jesus, the devil invites Jesus to use his power to establish a political empire grounded in the ways of the world, the ways of domination and violence. And so basically, uh, Satan is tempting Jesus to grab the power. Not the other thing. <laughs> well, we had no kids in here. I say the Satan said, "Grab the power, Jesus. Grab the power that I have over the nations, over the world systems, over the economies, over the political structures, and the way that I run things. I want Jesus, you, I'm going to give this to you, Jesus. I'm going to let you run the nations the way that I have run them, based in domination and violence and destruction and fear and oppression. And even to this day, I would even say racism and xenophobia and fear of other people that live and look different than I do. And so I I see Jesus being tempted. I see the church being tempted to grab power over a country in the way that the devil would take power, not the way that Jesus takes power or uses power. So Jesus is tempted. With all the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all their authority and splendor. I can imagine Jesus being today, shown like a video 
a montage of different nations and kingdoms and their high rises and their skylines and their political institutions and their and their powerful architecture, which is overwhelming. If you've ever been to D.C., the architecture is very overwhelming. It imposes upon you when you go to D.C. Y'all been to D.C. before? You go to the Capitol building, it's like, oh, my gosh. You go to the White House, the Washington Monument, Lincoln Memorial, all these architecture, it imposes upon you, and it says power. Interesting, a lot of the architecture is Roman architecture. Hmm. I won't say much about that. Like some just skipped over the Atlantic and came over here over 200 years ago. And so the thing that's interesting is Jesus is being tempted with power. I don't know if you know this or not, but the word America, y'all know what the word America comes from. Because we're talking about Jesus running for president of America, right? So you got, we got to know what America is, right, what America comes from. Y'all don't even know what the name America even means. Have y'all heard this before? Come on, y'all Americans. Y'all don't know what America means. That's what we're told. But I mean the literal word itself. Do y'all know who America's named after? Who's America named after? Malachi? Close. It's Italian. Yeah, you got it. Shemekha got it. Amerigo Vespucci. Y'all know this? He was an Italian explorer that hit the Caribbean and some parts of the Americas, right? But his name, Amerigo, is considered... The, the, the reason why America is named America because America vs. Future, because he discovered something, which is weird because other people were already here when he so-called discovered America. But let me, let me just get rid of the mystery for a moment. Um, America, the word itself is an Italian word, but also comes from a German word, Emmerich, which literally means universal power. Y'all know that? The word America in its root word literally means global or universal power. And so Jesus is standing atop in this high place at this mountaintop, and, 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 and Satan tempts Jesus with universal power over all the kingdoms of the world that are in Satan's sway. I feel like the church oftentimes is tempted with this kind of power and not lean more into the power that comes from Jesus, which is a different kind of power. But Jesus sees the heart of the temptation. Jesus sees this the heart of the seduction, he sees the claim, the temptation to idolatry. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Grab the power, Jesus. 
grab the power. I can give you your power. You're the son of God. You're a king. Don't you want the power? Don't you want the authority? Don't you want to make America great again, Jesus? Don't you want to make Israel great again, Jesus? Church, don't you want to use Jesus' power to make this country great again? You see how they took God off the money? Y'all see how we were once a great Christian nation where at the beginning everybody loved Jesus and held hands and shared bread with each other. Everybody loved on each other. And something just happened around the 60s. They started challenging Jesus in the community. They started challenging Jesus, the name Jesus in the culture. We were just, we just loved Jesus up until the 60s. Everybody, we all got along. It was kumbaya. When Jesus had real power over America. Is this what you're told? Isn't this what y'all told? But it wasn't Jesus' power. It was a church that has been seduced for centuries to take power the way that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with the same power. Because when these folks showed up with the gospel for the most part, we had some good folks in that, thank God for his grace, but for the most part, those who came first came to this land in the name of Jesus came in the power of the power that Satan tried to tempt Jesus with to take power over other people. Jesus is like, I don't want your power. Be wary, church, when Christians are tempted with power that is a power that's over other people to control other people. But it's not a power that's about being with people, with them in their suffering, with them in their pain, with them in their injustice to find some way to empower, to equip them, to be alongside them. A power that forces you into a place of compassion. Any kind of use of the name of Jesus that does not take into account compassion and giving power up to give it to other people who have not power, that has nothing to do with Jesus. And I'm going to straight say it. It is the name of Satan that that kind of power is used. I'm telling you, for centuries the church has been tempted to take up power that Satan tries to give the church. And unfortunately, y'all, I'm just going to be real with you, the church has given to that temptation century after century, but it's always been a witness of people that said, we will not take that kind of power. Jesus said, it's idolatry. I remember some years ago, I was invited to speak on a uh, ecumenical council um, of uh, interfaith discussion. And on this panel, they had Sikhs, which are like Muslim mystics, uh, um, Buddhist, Hindu, Baha'i, uh, even different 
version of Christianity, more of the, the more uh, Protestant mainline Christians, Lutheran, Methodist. And so I was supposed to have been representing the Protestant or the, the evangelical crowd. So I was all at this, at this, uh, at this panel discussion. This is at UNCC, so there's some highfalutin folk, right, some serious scholars on this. I'm like, how do I even get on this panel? I don't even understand why I'm even here, right, because some of these people actually were professors of mine. So here I am in this conversation. And so the question came around, do we all worship the same God? And everybody's in good liberal fashion. Yes, we all serve the same God. And so they're going to a room, people saying, yes, eventually they all paths lead to, all the paths, you know, interesting, somebody said all the paths lead to Rome. I was like, wow, you don't even realize how profound that is, right? And so it got to me, I'm like the last one, and I got to be the troublemaker. I'm like, no, we don't all serve the same God. And all the progressives looked at me like, oh, my God, who invited this nut into the forum? And I said, me and David Duke do not serve the same Jesus. And at the moment, at the time, this is like during the Iraq war and all that, I said, me and George Bush don't serve the same Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay, that's different. See, there's the Jesus of culture. There's the Jesus that yields to the temptation of Satan to grab a worldly power to dominate others, to be indifferent to the suffering and cries of injustice by those who are oppressed in a society. There is a Jesus who is in totally in favor of the powerful and the wealthy and the rich and to ways in which the, the, the poor or their resources, their labor is being sucked out of them for just to be used and not to be concerned about. There is a Jesus who's not concerned about just wages, who's not seriously concerned about ameliorating poverty in this community, in this world. But then there's a Jesus that will suffer with others. Which Jesus will you be tempted with? Or which Jesus will you follow? Which God will you follow? Culture war Jesus? Or Jesus in the red? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And if you are the son of God, and since you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here and for it is written. And I love this because Satan is quoting the scriptures. It's interesting. A lot of times we get told in our culture <clears throat> that Satan wants to get rid of the Bible. Actually, I don't think so. I think Satan loves the Bible. Because according to this passage right here, he knows how to quote it. See, the, the temptation is, is not to have the scriptures. The temptation is how you will read the scriptures. Will you read the scriptures in service of others? 
when you read the scriptures in solidarity with those who are, who are marginalized, who are hurt, who are pain, who are trapped in sin, or would you read the scriptures in favor for your own self-aggrandizement, for the powerful, for the wealthy? Will you read the scriptures? How will you read the scriptures? And one of the things about these temptations is that these are temptations to self-absorption. They're directed at Jesus getting something just for himself. Since you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put your Lord, put the Lord your God to the test. So the question is, what kind of son of God will Jesus be? How does Jesus, the son of God, respond when he is tested in this way? at the place of identity and mission? Will he be the son of God that the world would want him to be? Or will he be the son of God that the Father wants him to be? In light of today, and if those temptations were put to you today, what kind of follower, what kind of child of God will you be? Will you be the child of God that the culture says you ought to be? Or will you be the child of God that follows the son of God, the true son of God, the Jesus, the Christ? These temptations will be self-absorbed to, to become other than the son of God. That's what the temptation is. Temptations will try to throw you off your game. That's when temptations are the most powerful. The most powerful temptations are not the ones that will try to send you somewhere else. The most powerful temptations are those temptations that will try to make you be something other than what you already are, what God has called you to be. But use the same words to describe it. Let me put it this way. Jesus was called to be a, that he was being tempted to be a different kind of son of God. And we are tempted in the same way in this culture to be different kinds of Christians, to be different kinds of followers of Jesus, preoccupied with cultural stuff that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. And in this last temptation, and we'll end here, the devil tempts Jesus to use God for his own ends, to make God an instrument for his own success and popularity. Because you got to understand, when Satan takes him in, the, in, this, in this story right here, when Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple, this is during the time of, uh, in the temple, there would have been people present. And so Jesus jumping off the temple and being rescued by angels would have made a spectacle out of Jesus. It would have made Jesus famous in the way that we think today. It would have made Jesus a celebrity in the way that we think today. It would have made Jesus in that time the kind of king that they wanted in that day. But Jesus says no. I'm not going to make a spectacle out of this. I'm not going to use God to be who I already am. And here's the catch, y'all. Here's the thing. You got to know who you are in God. 
You got to know who your identity is in God because if you don't know who your identity is as a child of God as referenced by Jesus, Jesus being your primary reference point, if you don't know who you are by child of God, it is easy for those very temptations to draw you away. And not just in your identity, but in your mission. Church, we're entering into interesting times. Jesus, the the name or the word Jesus is going to be enlisted for all kind of political interests. And it's going to get even higher. I'm praying for our country. I'm praying for our community. People are threatening, people that disagree with them with violence. There's some deep underlying racial issues happening right now. People are threatening to use racial violence against people of color all over this country. I'm praying that people, I'm praying that cooler minds, cooler hearts will prevail in this upcoming season that we're coming into. But pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for yourself that you not yield to the temptation to believe that the Son of God is something that Satan would want, but that the Father has want. Believe in that Son of God, the Jesus that spoke in red. I'll end with this. There's a, there was a popular Russian novelist. His name was Fyodor Dostoevsky. He wrote The Brothers Karamazov. Anybody familiar with this? He wrote a poem years ago, over a century ago, called The Grand Inquisitor. And in this poem, the poem is situated during the time of the Great, the, uh, the great Inquisition. You know about the Grand or Great Inquisition? The Great Inquisition was when, during the time in Europe, when people who didn't believe what the church officially taught they were tortured to death, right? If you didn't believe exactly what the church taught, you were burned at the stake. You were tortured to confess what the church taught about Jesus. Matter of fact, if you weren't a Christian in some countries, you were not even considered a citizen in those countries. You ever heard about the Grand Inquisition? And so oftentimes there would be a judge or a person or a priest that they would call the Grand Inquisitor. And what he would do is, he would take you to the torture chamber, sit you down and say, do you affirm the teachings of the church? And if you say no, they would torture you, literally. And I won't get into all the different ways they tortured you. Well, in Fyodor Dostoevsky's poem, The Grand Inquisitor, in the story, there is this, 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 this homeless man who comes out of nowhere, and he's performing miracles, and he's feeding the poor, and he's giving people a different mindset about what's going on in their city. And what happens is he begins to make claims about himself. He actually begins to claim himself to be the son of God. And so in the story, in the poem, this is, this is a work of fiction, of course, in the story, Jesus decides to show up during this period of history. And so they grab Jesus up 
the authorities grab Jesus, they take Jesus down to the torture chamber. And the Grand Inquisitor with all his clerical robes and, you know, he's got his mitre and all that stuff. And he sits down and he's interrogating Jesus. And the Inquisitor knows that this is Jesus. Like, he knows that this is Jesus. He's like, all right, Jesus, we're glad you came. But we got enough power now. We don't really need you. We've been doing quite well since you left. We don't need you anymore. And so this grand inquisitor begins to go down the line in ways that the churches gain power in the society and how they don't really need Jesus because if they really begin to take Jesus serious again like they used to, he said, we would have to give up our power. We have to give up our prominence. We have to give up our military. We have to give up all our weapons. We have to give up our cultural power over other people. And so, Jesus, we cannot take you in to the church And so after this priest, this grand inquisitor, basically goes off in Jesus and tells Jesus that we, we can't have you here. Jesus stands up in the poem without a word and just walks over to the grand inquisitor, gives him a kiss on his forehead, and just walks out the church. Church. The church in our country is being tempted in ways that are beyond all kind of imaginings. But the challenge, though, this is an opportunity to read more deeply and to imbibe and to reflect on the words and life of Jesus like never before. Because I really believe that it is the, 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 the word of the Lord, the word of Christ dwelling richly in us that will help us to run away from these temptations. So I'm going to be praying this week and the week after that. Don't be caught up, so much caught up in the partisan divides because this power works both ways in this culture. It's the same power over other people. But I'm praying that God would give you discernment as a follower of Jesus and how to proceed in this culture, in this community with the gospel. You'll be tempted to be self-absorbed. You'll be tempted to look at self and overlooking others. You'll be tempted in many different ways. Amen. Amen.